Last time we gathered, I was honored to introduce our annual vision, uh, Undaunted. Undaunted is our annual theme. It's drawn from 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. In response to that message, I was blessed with a bunch of great mail, even more than usual, including letters uh, like these. Uh, C wrote and said, I'm so thankful that you're preaching about living undaunted. So many let fear grip them in a crippling way. I even know believers in Jesus who seem to have made fear their idol. And another person wrote and said, during the sermon yesterday, I realized that my unhealthy fear is not of God. I'm simply giving it to Him. And then Psalm 55, 22, cast your burden on the Lord and He shall sustain you. Those are wonderful, aren't they? And, and this, I want to show you one more. This next letter prepared me for what you and I are going to learn today. This person wrote and said, thinking about how the power aspect of 2 Timothy 1.7 fits with the love part reminded me of the final scene in the 2000 movie X-Men. Professor Xavier refuses to relinquish his relationship with Magneto despite the harm Magneto has caused. Xavier says, I'll always be here, old friend. That should be interpreted, this person writes, two ways. I'll always be here to stop you from making war. And I'll always be here as your friend. No fear, because power and love, close quote. Well said, right? So let's get to that idea of committed, undeserved friendship. Let's establish our context first. As we say in your notes, um, if you're online, we are so thrilled to be with you wherever you are. Thank you. Thank you for the honor of getting to study with you here in the auditorium. Your notes are inside your bulletin. For you guys, there should be a link from your host. You'll see this headline in your notes. 2 Timothy 1.7 is the undaunted action plan. Let's read it together. 2 Timothy 1.7, all together. Let's read. You can just look up here. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. 2 Timothy 1.7. Let's say it again. Say 2 Timothy 1.7. 2 Timothy 1.7. Now all together. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. One more time. Close your eyes. Close your eyes. 2 Timothy 1.7. Say it. 2 Timothy 1.7. Together. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. Open your eyes. Amen. Step one. We have got to... Here's our action plan. We have got to fight cowardice. What's the text say? No spirit of timidity. Uh, the Greek is delia, uh, numa delia. Numa delia means cowardly or intimidated in spirit. I told you before that my favorite example I can find of this in literature is a Greek poet who very grumpily uh, said of the wind that wouldn't fill his sails because it was too weak that it was numa delia. It was a cowardly wind. Uh, when, when they translated the Old Testament into Greek, uh, into Koine Greek, they used Numa Delia here, Leviticus 26. God says, I will put anxiety, Delia, in their hearts, Numa. What, what does that mean? What does cowardice look like? Here's what it is. The sound of a wind-driven leaf will put them to flight, and they will flee as one flees from the sword and fall, though no one is pursuing them. Close quote. Isn't that amazing? That's numadelia. That's what you and I have to fight in our souls every single day. How do we do so? Through God's power, 2 Timothy 1.7. That's what we discussed last time. Um, if you missed it, please jump back when you can to, uh, to the podcast or, or go online and find this message uh, on our website. Do, don't fear. Use your superpower. How do we eschew fear? Through God's power and discipline. 
Uh, that's what we're going to look at next time. The great Greek word is sophronismos. Sophronismos means rational, undeceived, purposeful, prudent, correct, disciplined. And actually, it's a weird word in that it means all those together. We'll get to that concept more next time. Today, we're going to learn from the middle term, love. We become undaunted through power, love, and discipline. So let's talk about love. Agape is the Greek word. It's your first fancy word for today, boys and girls. On the count of three, you get to say agape. One, two, three. Agape. Uh, if you're ever in Greece, uh, modern Greek, they say agape is how they pronounce it now. Uh, it's the same word. Um, a lot of people that have been Christians for a while have kind of absorbed this word into their vocabulary because it's such an important term. It may be new to you, so let's go through it together. Here's what agape means, the word that's translated love in our text. It, it, this kind of love is purposeful, other-centered, unconditional, self-sacrificial love. That's what agape means. Um, it can help to understand it, to compare it to the other words that were used for love in the Greek language. So in Koine Greek, you had four words that were used for love. Eros, that's passion, that's sensual desire. Storge is natural family affection, familial affection. Philia is similar, but not within your, your blood family. That's, uh, that's brotherly love, family, lo- uh, loyal friendship kind of love. And then agape, purposeful, other-centered, unconditional, self-sacrificial love. Now think about this. Those other three kinds of love, those first three there, they're all affected by circumstances, right? Scared people living in a terrifying world cannot just conjure up eros. Um, Even storge gets strained. When life gets hard, families sometimes get split apart. Your your Philadelphia pals, your your buddies are sometimes the ones who stab you in the back. But agape is different. It's an unconditional choice. It is purposeful. It doesn't worry about self because it's other-centered. It is self-sacrificial. Agape is unconditional, so the environment doesn't matter. And that, agape, is a major part of God's action plan for overcoming our inbred natural spirit of timidity. Wonderfully, God grants us an entire treatise on agape love. 1 Corinthians 13 is given by the Lord just so you and I can understand and practice agape. Turning your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It's right after the book of Romans and just before 2 Corinthians. So 1 Corinthians, go there, chapter 13. Let's read 1 through 3. If I speak with human or angelic tongues but do not have love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so that I can move mountains but do not have love, I'm nothing. And if I give away all my possessions, and if I give up my body in order to boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. Without love, one is empty. That's the big idea in these verses, and this is the very first thing you and I have to learn. If we are going to overcome fear with love, we have to learn this. Fear with love, we've got to learn this. Without love, we're empty. In fact, without agape, all of our fancy skills become just brassy noise. Once upon a time, I had just finished introducing some new information to all of our new staff at uh, Pine Cove uh, camps. uh, It was the big staff development time and all of our new counselors there, and it went well. I did a good job. They're counselors, right? So they're screaming, they're cheering, doing cheers for me, and it's kind of fun. And I walk off the stage, and next after me is, is Phil Hook. Now, Dr. Hook is coming up on stage. He was a former professor at Dallas Theological Seminary, and he was one of my mentors. And Phil saw this, and he saw a teachable moment. So he got up and he said this. Some of you are sitting there comparing yourself to Drano. That, that's my camp. That was my camp name. Um, it's a great name. And, and um, 
You're comparing yourself to right now, and let me do my Phil Hook voice, and you're thinking, well, I want to be like that. What foolishness. You don't know him like I do. He sometimes struggles unsuccessfully to love people. What you desire are his gifts, but those gifts are worthless without love. Phil then said, all of us, including Drano, must first and foremost grow in love. Close quote. Now, even though I was blushing pretty furiously, I stood up and started applauding, and the whole crowd did because what he said was absolutely right. Read verse 1 again. If I speak human or angelic tongues but do not have love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And verse 2 points out that without agape, knowledge becomes vain. My friend Steve is a couple of decades older than I. He said I could, I could share his story. Very kind of him. Steve is remarkably bright. He's very accomplished. This guy changed his field. In, in all sincerity, I do not think there's anyone on the planet who knows more about what he does than Steve. Uh, he achieved considerable fame and a, and a not inconsiderable fortune. But as he entered late middle age, Steve realized how poorly and how little he loved. Here's what he did. Steve made buddies, he did, but he never let them get too close. Does that make sense? He, uh, he, he very much cared for his family and provided for them, but, but he never was, was really engagingly, sacrificially affectionate with them. The, Steve's learning, Steve's impact are absolutely amazing, but here's the weird part. It's enjoyed by people far from him much more than by anyone near to him. Which led to Steve writing this letter. It's a wonderful letter he wrote to his wife and his kids and his grandkids. He said, I realize that I have in reality left no legacy with you. This is not your fault. It is mine. The problem is not lack of knowledge, but lack of unconditional love. I'm terribly sorry. And I look forward to changing this by God's power. In the years I have left, I intend to replace a nothing legacy with a loving one, close quote. Thank God Steve repented, and he addressed his 1 Corinthians 13, verse 2 problem. You and I must do the same, or we will achieve nothing. Same is true for amazing faith. Without love, amazing faith is emptiness. Think about all the things people trust. Mary wakes up in the morning. She trusted her alarm clock to go off on time. And it did. Mary believed that her shower would give her hot water. She didn't even, didn't even think about it, never questioned it. Went in, lo, behold, hot water cometh forth, right? Mary goes to drive her kids to school. She just assumes that her car will work flawlessly, and it does. It's just fine. She drops the kids off. She, um, she goes uh, to, to uh, pick, run some errands, and she expects her credit card to work, and it does perfectly. She goes to work out, and her body works just fine. She goes to the office, and there is her desk exactly where it's supposed to be. Mary trusted all these things, and they all came true. But suppose Mary didn't unconditionally love all day. She didn't appreciate the miracle of having children to drop off. Instead, she saw them as a headache. She didn't appreciate her alarm or her shower or her car or, or having credit or a body that worked. It, it, let me at least put it this way. At the gym, at work, all the places she went, she did not show agape, unconditional, self-sacrificial love. Mary had great faith all day. She trusted many things, as, as humans do. Some of them were even trustworthy things, but she didn't love and that means, how did Mary feel? You know, how did she feel at the end of the day? Empty. If I don't have love, I have nothing 
Now, of course, Paul is discussing trust not in alarm clocks, but in God. 1 Corinthians 13, he's saying the Lord is fully trustworthy, and you and I should believe in Him throughout the day, every day. But if we don't love, our faith in God becomes as empty as the typical day that is experienced by billions of Marys all over the world throughout all of human history. Yes, trust, but agapify. Any, anybody get the rig? Trust, but... Ronald Reagan said, trust but verify. Look it up. It's, it's very famous. Um, I was really proud of that illusion. Think of it like this. Our, uh, our church planter, Pastor Chad, he's exhibiting great faith. He is really trusting in stepping out to plant a new church for us. But it's all going to be empty if he doesn't love. Trust but agapify, right? All right, verse 3 shows us that sacrifice even becomes profitless without love. Uh, now, giving possessions here is not some knee-jerk action. Um, somizo is a Greek word. Uh, the, the first give, give away, is somizo. It's a word for uh, parceling out a, from a cache of goods. It's, it's a word for building up a stockpile and then, uh, like a good steward, using that stockpile to give out in an appropriate way. I, I need to point that out because it has become, in some Christian circles, it's become somewhat popular to use this word, uh, as a call for government ownership of all property. Uh, that, that is terrible miscast of the word. The, the, the person is the one parceling out here. The person's in charge of the goods. The goods are not in the hand of any government. In fact, if they were, somizo makes no sense. The, think about it like this. Sacrifice is much more real and much more painful if I don't have to give the stuff away, right? Um, think about taxation. Does it hurt to pay taxes? Yeah, of course it does. But not that much, because A, they actually do achieve good things that even you appreciate, and certainly you appreciate that they bless others, and B, if you don't do it, you go to jail, right? So it's not that hard to pay taxes. Sacrifice, so Mizo is giving toward that mission trip when you had saved up the money, and you choose to do that instead of going out to eat at the fancy restaurant. So Mizo is living below my means, on a regular basis so that I have funds to give to the things that are important to sacrifice for those. That's somizo. And the ultimate expression of that kind of sacrifice is giving self to be burned instead of recanting faith in Christ. Now this time, the second give, a government is involved. This is parado. Parado is the second give in verse 3. Now this is a term that does involve an authority. It's for handing something over to an authority. For 2,000 years, Christians have with tragic regularity, given their lives to human governments rather than lie about the grace of God and Jesus. That's what this is describing. It's laudable. It is the ultimate sacrifice. And by the way, it's, it's, it's so difficult to manage that, that even our Greek manuscripts, our oldest Greek manuscripts we have of 1 Corinthians, and we have plenty, um, half of them read, give my body to be burned, and half of them read, give my body to boast. Uh, it's, it's because either way, it is the ultimate noble thing to do. But it's all profitless without love. Paul indulges in a very clever play on words here. Think, think. agape is self-sacrificial love, right? So if you remove the love part, that makes it just about self. It looks great as a sacrifice, but it's actually just about you. This is what most sacrifices in our world today are. They're worthless, they're meaningless, because there's no agape. Self-love is really what they're about. Sacrifice is great, but it achieves no reward if done without agape. By contrast, with love, you get all things. Look at verse 4. Verse 4. 
Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy, is not boastful, is not arrogant, is not rude, is not self-seeking, is not irritable, and does not keep a record of wrongs. Love finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. God explains agape to us using four categories of truth. So let's parcel them out like good stewards of this wonderful repository. This is going to help us learn together. Look to the right side of your notes. Go to the right side, and you're going to see there's space under four titles. Four titles, okay? Love is, love is not, love does not, and love does. You see that? Here's what I want you to do. Wherever you are, uh, wherever you are, whenever you're studying this with us, uh, unless you're operating heavy machinery right now, um, stop and grab your notes and grab your Bible and something with which to write. And I want you to parcel out these statements. There are 16 statements about love in those verses we just read, 4 through 8. You're going to put them in the proper categories right now. Everybody, everybody. Do this. Grab something with which to write. The, the, the lady next to you has, has pens that are breeding in the bottom of her purse. Every time she goes in there, there's more of them. And she will share with you. Uh, half of those say Frisco Bible on them. It's wonderful. So use those. Leave them with people. Um, grab something with which to write. And right now, take those statements in your Bible. Look at them. And uh, here, let me, let me put them back up for you right here, um, if I can. Look at those. Now, you need to parcel those out. Which ones are about something that love, love is? Which ones are about something love is not? Which ones are about something love doesn't do? Which ones are about something love does do? Right now, you, you will learn so much more if you will take the time to do this. Do it. Do it. There's no excuse. You're at home sick. Get your pen. Do it. If you, if you absolutely cannot write, then just do it in your head. You're smart. You can do that. Categorize it out. Okay. Well done. Think, think, think. All right. I know, I know you're still working. You, come on. Don't grumble at me. I'm the teacher. Good gracious. We just prayed for teachers, and you grumbled at your teacher. This is why they need prayer. All right. I know you're still working, but I want to show you something really cool. And, and you can finish on your own later. It'll be very good. But I want you to look up here. This is absolutely amazing. You've probably read 1 Corinthians 13. Many of you have read it probably many times. But I want to show you something you may not have known. The writing here is very refined, and it is poetic. And it's written in a way that the Greco-Roman audience in Corinth would have absolutely adored. They would have appreciated. Let me show you why. Look up here at the slide. These verses that we just read are arranged exactly according to the accepted formula for a Roman love poem. 
They were called circle poems, uh, the ring structure. They were called, not, nothing to do with rings, but they were called a ring structure. And by the first century BC, this had become very established. This is how you wrote a love poem. And here's what you did. You had 16 concepts. Sometimes there were 17, but the 17 didn't really count because it was just an introductory thought. Uh, 16 concepts, and they flowed this way. You had a collection of three thoughts, then you had a collection of five thoughts, and then you would, you would, on an inverse tack, same subject, but on a different tack, you would have three statements followed by five statements. Look at what you just read. Oh, wait, before we do, I have, I have something funny to, oh, wait, I, too far. I have something funny to show you. Okay, this is my favorite, all-time favorite uh, mosaic of the Emperor Nero. Get this. Nero, just a few years after this letter was written, Nero went to Corinth himself. He went to Greece, and he did a tour of all the, the Greek places, the, the Romanesque cities, and he ended up at Olympia. And the Olympic Games were about to go down. And Nero petitioned the judges of the venerable Olympic Games that they needed to add Romanesque poetry as a competition. These are athletic contests. Of course, what am I saying? Have you looked at our Olympics? Anyway, the... Um, sorry. I say that out loud? I didn't mean to. Um, he asked them, and he's the emperor of Rome. What did they do? They added Romanesque poetry, right? And just to cut to the end of the chase, who do you think won? Nero did. But it was absolutely awful, okay? Now, Suetonius is our only source for this, and he is decidedly anti-Nero, but this is really funny. Suetonius said this, During the ridiculously lengthy time of his performance, nobody was allowed to stir out of the theater upon any account, however necessary. It is said some women and child were delivered there. <laughs> Many of the spectators, being quite wearied with hearing and applauding him, counterfeited themselves dead and were carried out for their funeral. <laughs> That's how bad Nero's poetry was, all right? By contrast, look at what Paul gave. This is succinct. This is brilliant. It is, did you notice as you're putting them in the categories, what do we have? Now, by the way, we didn't read it, but up in chapter 12, verse 31, there's the intro, the 17th. I'll show you a more excellent way. And then we have three thoughts on what love is. We have five thoughts on what love is not. And then, and then it reverses about doing instead of being. And we have three statements of what love does not and five statements of what love does. Isn't that cool? No one, no one except a guy that you've never read named Catullus ever did Roman ring cycle poetry as well as this. No one ever wrote it as well as Paul except for Catullus. And Catullus' stuff is already being forgotten and Paul's will live forever. Isn't that amazing? Okay, now to your text work. What did you get for love is? Uh, somebody tell me, what did you get for love is? Love is what? Patient, what else? All right, the last one's kind of the tough one. Always faithful, unending. Um, however, in, in different translations, it'll be different ways, never failing, never ending. That's what love is. Um, so quickly, I'd like you to do this. Pick the one of those at which you are the weakest. All right? Are you, are you more impatient? Are you more likely to be unkind? Are you more fickle in your self-sacrificial love? Pick one. You got one? The one at which you're weakest. All right, now pray with me. Let's pray. Lord, Help me to grow by your gracious development. We cannot get away from fear until we love. This is lacking. Patience, kindness, unending is lacking in my love, and that must change. Amen. All right, now, what did you find for love is not? Uh, let's have some volunteers. What did you get for love is not? Not what? 
Boastful, what else? Very good. This side's letting me down. What, 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 give me one. Rude. It's not rude. Okay, here's the five. Uh, love is not boastful, arrogant, rude, self-seeking, or irritable. Um, look at that list and pick out the one that most taints your love. Are you arrogant? Are you, are you self-seeking? Which today we would probably translate entitled. Um, at one time or another, I have struggled with every one of these, uh, probably, probably self-seeking the most. I read a great article on that just last week. It, this article was about work, about what we're to be like at work, and, and uh, Dr. Merrill here, uh, she said this about self-seeking uh, at work. She says, when self-seeking eclipses the more noble reasons for which we do our work, our tasks and relationships become more about us advancing our name, image, and influence than humbly serving those to whom God has called us. Suddenly, perhaps even unconsciously, we bring a less than holy angle to our work, an angle that puts our own glory ahead of God's, close quote, ouch. Is that you? That has been me. Or are you more prone to be boastful, arrogant, rude, or irritable? Pick one. Pick one right now and pray with me. Let's pray. Lord, help us grow by your gracious development. We cannot eliminate fear until we love. This is tainting my love, and it must change. Amen. What did you observe about love does not? Love does not what? What did you get? Envy. What else? Keep a record of wrongs. Okay. Oh, all right. Actually, it depends on the translation. You could put that, I like to find joy in unrighteousness. It does not rejoice in unrighteousness. If there has ever been a great description of our modern world, it's that right there. Have you, have you, are you awake? Do you notice what's going on in the world around us? People are so envious one of the major traits of our time is that people find real joy in evil, in unrighteousness, and keep a record of offenses. Oh my goodness, we're keeping records that go back generations and have nothing to do with anyone. It's insane. Thank goodness we're not like that. Or maybe we are. Let's pray. Pray with me. Lord, help us, not anybody else, help us grow by your gracious development. We cannot conquer fear without love this is tainting my love keeping a record of offenses rejoicing in unrighteousness in, in man's retribution in, in human victory instead of in truth envy is tainting my love and that must change all God's people said final part is what love does what love does what did you put in this category what did you put rejoice in the truth, uh, bears all things. You said, okay, yeah, and, that, and then the rest of them, well, yeah, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. All things is a pretty nifty way poetically to summarize all of the issues in life, uh, every single battle that goes on. Uh, when I'm burdened, love, empowered by God, causes me to bear it all. Same with hope and the rest of the love does set. Um, in response to the love does once, let's, let's pray again. Lord, help us grow by your gracious development. We cannot get away from fear until we love. And these things need fulfilled in my love. I must learn to rejoice in truth, to bear all things, believe all things, hope all things, and endure all things. All God's people said, amen. Of course, that brings up the question that I know you're asking in your Emperor Nero imitation, how? How does love overcome fear? Practically, how does this happen? Great question, Lucius Domitius, Ahenobarbus, Nero, Claudius, Caesar, Augustus, Germanicus. 
That is his full name, by the way. Uh, thank you for asking. The answer is found in 1 John chapter 4. One last time, let's turn in your Bible to 1 John. 1 John, right after the two Peter letters and just before 2 John. 1 John chapter 4. Let's read verses 15 and 16. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God remains in him and he in God. And we have come to know and to believe the love God has for us. God is love. And the one who remains in love remains in God. And God remains in him. I recently uh, placed a bunch of sod, uh, St. Augustine's sod, in the side yard at my house. It wasn't the Bermuda wasn't flourishing because it didn't get enough sun. So I put the sod there and it was doing really well. And then this, this rabbit came along and decided to make a scrape, wanted to make a little place to dump baby bunnies, um, and so undid a certain section of the sod, and the, and the roots of that sod were, were brought up away from the ground. What do you think happened to those runners that were scraped up? What do you think happened to them? They, they died. Yeah, they died. By, speaking of died, just so you know the end of the story, um, our Labradoodle Kenobi took care of that rabbit. Um, <laughs> I know some of you love suburban thumpers, so I'm not going to say anything about what happened. I just, I just want you to know that my grass is all safe now. Um, uh, 1 John 4 is obviously alluding to that great scene. There was a, there's a great scene at the Last Supper. Uh, John 15 is where it's recorded. When, when Jesus told his disciples they can only bear fruit when they are abiding, when they're living, putting down roots in him. Now, in both the Jesus' discourse in, in John 15 in the upper room and in 1 John 4 in John's letter... The word we translate remain or abide, depending on your translation, it's the Greek meno. Meno. Think of a little tiny swimming fish. Meno. Um, that's your second fancy word for the day. On the count of three, you get to say meno. One, two, three. Meno, meno is, is an ancient term. It's mainly used for rooting in place, for, for, for planting and, and, and maintaining a homestead. God is love. When we root in him, we bear the fruit of love. Perfect love casts out fear. So, so we overcome a life of fright when we remain rooted in God's love. Let me get very practical. In answer to your neuronic question, here are three practical steps that, that I use to check how well I'm remaining minnow, how well I'm abiding in God's love. You'll come up with many more, I'm sure, as the Holy Spirit inspires you, but these are the ones I use. I try to take every thought captive, and I notice that when I am thinking harshly about a person, horribly, this is not a rare occurrence, and I don't mean thinking harshly about their ideas or their actions, that can be healthy, but I'm thinking harshly of that person. I have to stop and remember that that is exactly how I was seen in my sin nature by God. In fact, probably much worse. Second thing I do to make sure I abide and appreciate God's love is I stop worrying. And I've gotten a lot better at this over the years. I stop worrying about human affections. I just remain in God's love. No other love is necessary. No one else's opinion matters. And then I check my generosity. This may sound strange, but I, I have noticed, and you'll see this in Scripture a lot, there's a fascinating connection between, uh, between love, abiding in love, and being generous. It often overflows into that. So I ask myself when I'm giving, am I, am I a happy giver? Am I, am I giving with joy? If I'm not, and sometimes I'm not, then I'm likely becoming unrooted from agape. I'm, I'm not really living in God's love. All right, now read verses 17 through 18. 
In this, love is made complete with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Because as he, talking about Jesus is, so also are we in this world. There's no fear in love. Instead, perfect love drives out fear because fear involves punishment. So the one who fears is not complete in love. Remaining in God's love, here's how we put it in your notes. Remaining in God's love grants confidence for the hereafter and the here. We do not sweat the small stuff. And compared to God, it's all small stuff. In this world, we are undaunted, just as Jesus was. You know this, right? Nothing can move us off mission unless we let it. And if we're rooted in God's love, we won't let it. After this world, we have no fear of judgment at all, not not because of us, but because of God's love expressed through the sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf. Our sins are real, and they are damning, but they were paid for at the cross, and they were eliminated at an empty tomb. Amen? We are brimming with confidence precisely because of God's love for us. One of those letters that I read from earlier mentioned that X-Men film. The very last scene in that movie has a really good picture of confidence, a great expression of it. I want you to look and listen. Doesn't it ever wake you in the middle of the night? The feeling that someday they will pass that foolish law or one just like it, and come for you and your children. It does indeed. What do you do when you wake up to that? I feel a great swell of pity for the poor soul who comes to that school looking for trouble. awesome. Because of Christ, what do we have? We have peace for ourselves and we have a great swell of pity for those who come to cause us trouble. You and I have confidence because we know Jesus who loves us has already checkmated the enemy. Amen? All right, read the reminder in verse 19. We love because he first loved us. Say it with me, everybody. Verse 19, we love because he first loved us. The reminder here, it all starts with God's love. In case you forgot along the journey, The love that makes all the difference does not originate with you. It doesn't originate in any mere human. It begins with God. It's fascinating how John writes this. He made that same point way back in the beginning, verses 15 and 16. But he circles back to it here to make certain that we understand. It all begins with God's love. One of our pastors reminded me of Francis Schaeffer's awesome comment on this verse. Uh, Schaeffer said this, modern man really does not understand it. He has no adequate universal for love. On the other hand, the Christian does have the adequate universal he needs in order to be able to discuss the meaning of love. Among the things we know about the Trinity is that the Trinity, talking about the triunity of God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one God and three equal persons. The Trinity was before the creation of everything else and love existed between the persons of the Trinity before the foundations of the world. This being so, the existence of love as we know it in our makeup does not have an origin in chance, but its origin is from that which has always been, close quote. When I was a new Christian, I would go to church, and it was fairly popular then for preachers to say things like this, you can't love until you learn to love yourself. And it always felt strange. I was like, something about that felt off, but I never knew what it was until I read 1 John chapter 4, and then it clicked. We don't love because we learn to love self. That's not it. We, we love because we don't deserve any affection at all. God approached us when we were absolutely wretched and unlovable, and he first loved us. 
That's what gives us the capacity to love. Romans 5.8 says it this way. I'd like, I'll tell you what, let's just read it together. Uh, let's read 1 John 4.19 and then Romans 5.8 all together. We love because he first loved us. Romans 5.8. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. Amen. How does love overcome fear? It starts with God's love, and then we bear fruit by remaining in that, and that gives us undaunted confidence. But don't leave yet. John closes with a little assessment. Go to verse 20, the very end of the section. If anyone says, I love God, and yet hates his brother or sister, he's a liar. For the person who does not love his brother or sister whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And we have this command from him. Again, referring to that upper room discourse. The one who, does, who loves God must also love his brother and sister. It's a self-test here. The self-test concerns hatred of human beings. And this test helps explain why our era, why the world we live in today is so fearful. We are so fearful because there is so little love. The two are connected. Think of it like this. Contrast our time today with the parallel events in the 1960s. America was equally full of disturbing nonsense back in the 60s. In fact, some of the divisions within churches and society were even deeper and more violent in the 60s. But there was one thing that was different. In the 1960s, there was a Christian counterculture called to love. Christians chose to love each other even when they disagreed fervently. It was Christians who led the charge wading out very bravely into the quagmire of that culture and saying, follow me, follow me to the source of love. I don't hear much of that from Christians today. I, I hear a lot of yelling. I hear a lot of shaming. I hear a lot of, of, of pontificating. I hear a lot of excuses for why it's okay for me to hate because they did it first, right? But I don't hear much love. And by the way, yes, I can anticipate the mail I'm going to get as a result of what I just said. I understand that. Bring it on. I'm going to get letters. I'm going to get lots of them, and they're all going to say something like this. What? Compared to everyone else, I'm very loving. Okay. That, then you won't mind taking my little true-false quiz. Yeah, I put it in your notes for you so you can think about this. Uh, let's, true, false, little quiz for you. Since you're so loving, just answer this, true or false. I have gotten grumpy waiting for traffic in a church parking lot. True or false, when asked by a fellow Christian, how are you? I've said fine, even when that was not true. Which is a lie, and lying is not loving. You, okay, you see the connection. Third, I have avoided people that I know if I spot them first in public. By the way, I got a great note on that one. I got to share this with you. Um, this lady wrote me. She said, I've been confronted with the reality that it isn't fine for me to avoid people even though I'm an introvert. The I in my INFJ result from Myers-Briggs is no excuse to sit comfortably in my sin of not loving others. I have to push myself out of my comfort zone to show love to my brothers and sisters in Christ. It might seem minor, but it's one of the ways I have to die to self in order to love others well. Isn't that well said? And she added this side note. She said, don't get me wrong, I still prefer to recharge days with very little to no human interaction. Um, and my very extroverted husband is kind enough to allow me that recharge time. Okay, back to our list. True or false, I've gotten grumpy waiting for traffic in a church parking lot. I have lied and said, fine, when people ask, how are you? I've avoided people that I know if I spot them first in public. I hate it when people laugh loudly at church. Shh. Right? I sometimes, I, you're wicked. I sometimes, 
identify with angry or bitter people. I give, again, that connection between generosity. I give less to the local church than I know I should. I, I, I give less than I know I should. I'm bothered when people cry at church. Do that one. Yeah, bring that on. Um, here's the last one. This one's really hard. I honestly think, if I'm honest, deep down, I think, and you can insert here whatever hyphenated Christian group bothers you, you know, charismatic, Calvinist, Arminian, feminist Christians, whatever, they're creepy, right? They're just creepy. All right. Raise your hand if you answered true to any of those statements. Raise your hand. Yeah, me too. One of our pastors uh, wrote me recently and said, I hate your quizzes. Um, <laughs> frankly, so do I, because they work. They sometimes expose my wretchedness and how badly I miss the mark. Thankfully, God is always ready to receive me. He wants me to come and confess and find the joy of abiding in his agape. And this is a great time for that. We're going to do that right now. Uh, in fact, if, if you wish, I invite you to join me for a moment of kneeling. Uh, you don't have to. If, you, if you're able and you wish to do so, uh, I'm going to kneel. I encourage you to do the same. Let's prepare and spend a moment or two confessing with the Lord. Father, we repent. We repent of our hatred, our lack of love for people whom you love. And Lord, we're sorry for our excuses. Even when hatred seems understandable, I repent of it, knowing that you call me to love. Father, thank you for sticking verse 19 right in the middle of that passage. Thank you for always circling us back to your love. It's not that I, by my own grit and gumption, can soldier up the love. It comes from abiding in you and how much you love me. That's where it all must start. Speaking of love and starting, Lord, I pray for anyone studying with us who does not know Jesus as Savior, that you will open their heart to you right now. Let them replace the heart of stone, the, the spirit of cowardice that is naturally all of ours with your heart of love. Friend, listen. Our, as we said earlier, our sins are damning. You, me, we all deserve eternal separation from God. But God loves us so much that Jesus, fully God in that triunity, became fully human, and he died. He showed agape. He died on the cross for you. And then he rose from the grave. If you trust him, your sins are put on him on the cross, and by faith through his sacrifice, God's grace erases those. They are all paid for in Jesus, and you follow him in newness of life. If you've never done so, trust Jesus right now. Believe on him. Lord, by your grace, by your grace, we commit to no fear because perfect love casts it out. And we pray that is true of us. In Jesus' name. Amen.